Hi, welcome to FRT, the IF podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. Today, we're going to look at assessing cloud adoption and reflect on the role of cloud computing in the future of finance. There's also been a recent U.S. Treasury report on the topic, and we're delighted today to be able to dive into these issues with Howard Boville, who's IBM's global lead for cloud and also an alum of Bank of America. So just like IBM, he has a, a long history of working on both sides of the technology and finance equation. The official sector in the U.S. has been comparatively quiet on the subject of cloud computing and financial services. However, this recent report by Treasury has joined a global policy dialogue that's been going on for a little while on the role of cloud computing and the appropriate frameworks to manage risk and oversight for movement to cloud. We at the IF have viewed cloud computing as a critical tool for the digital transformation of financial services. And I think many years ago helped push forward the phrase, there may be some new risks uh, when we look at cloud computing, but the risk of not moving to cloud is certainly much greater than those that we could address. So Howard, as we look at the landscape of digital transformation of financial services and the role of cloud computing, what do you see? Where is industry on this journey and what are some of the key issues? The beginning of the journey is still actually underway. If you think about kind of the core business process areas within a bank, the front office, the mid office, and the back office, from the global banks that we work with around the world, the regionals and community banks, they're about 30% of their business processes in the front office has moved to a cloud provider. But in the mid office and the back office space, it's less than 5%. And that's not surprising given the appropriate reticence of this industry to innovate, um, typically a fast follower as opposed to an early adopter, and that's entirely appropriate. And the mission critical business processes that sit within the mid office and back office require further consideration. And cloud in and of itself is still a relatively nascent technology. AWS has been around for 14 years, but they built a platform for developers and therefore reduced the moats of somebody with an idea being able to spin up a business. That business model is very different to what you need in financial services. Azure come from it with a different perspective in terms of how they think about their productivity tools. And they absolutely do have enterprise thinking, but in the less mission critical front office space. The approach that IBM has been thinking deeply about, as we have for decades, is how we support and lend the innovation in a control fashion to these mid office and back office business processes. And as we think about those financial service firms that you're working with and what we see in global trends, you know, at the IF, we've certainly seen a, a strong understanding of what the opportunities are, the path to moving critical applications to the cloud. But as you said, there has been some reticence. And I, I think, you know, sometimes we wonder if maybe the top of the house at the financial institution and the regulator sort of see that common path. But when you get to an individual examiner or somebody who is, you know, responsible for a business and a financial institution, those risk adverse instincts that have been built up in financial services for very good reasons for a very long time can sometimes kick in. And those are you know, some of the constraints that we see and why we focused on engagement with the public sector, helping them really understand the issues. And I know that's something that your institution and certainly all of the different financial institutions that you work with have been focused on. How do you see driving that conversation about adoption? It's, it's, you're completely correct. It's a number of levels. One, one of which is education of all different constituents, whether it's regulators, whether it's third line internal audit, second line operational risk, or the first line practitioners, because people only hear and execute upon what they understand. And therefore getting that level of comprehension as to what the risk is. And if you understand that risk, you can then take the appropriate risk posture with the mitigating controls to move forward. From an early adopter perspective, there are edge cases where financial institutions have gone all in on cloud and typically with a, either a singular cloud provider or 
where we see these things, which I call franking clouds, where different business divisions have made decisions to go with different cloud operators. That absolutely introduces a lot of cybersecurity, operational and financial risk in terms of budgets. But that should not be seen as a reason not to move forward. What is required is a need to move forward with controlled innovation. And that's very much something I brought to IBM and what we built at IBM, where we have taken the security and compliance control frameworks of the banks that we work with, of which there are 84. We have many hundreds on the platform, but 84 that have provided their control frameworks. And we have built that as a piece of software to give continuous monitoring into the platform. So you have complete transparency around configuration, around concentration risk, around third and fourth party risk. And that console, that single capability of understanding your risk posture from security and compliance can be used by first line, second line ops risk, third line um, internal audit, and also supervisory bodies. And what we found with this platform that we have built is when you're working as one bank with 83 other banks, you start to actually have a more wholesome debate in terms of what the risks are and how you mitigate them. And that's really moved forward as we've seen the amount of digital transformation that's now taking place because of those capabilities that we actually put into the platform. And maybe a word about uh, sort of the heat map that you see on applications. As we've seen, I think 90% of the financial institutions around the world are, are doing something in the cloud. But when we look at critical applications and what's moved, the numbers are much lower. What do you see sort of having moved recently or what's on the cusp? Yeah, so I think the big shift, if you kind of take a from and a two, is that the early adopters of cloud would look to move what's known as workloads or applications and simply move them to a cloud provider. And that gets you nowhere in terms of any business value that you're deriving. It just simply moves that you can move the easier workloads, and that's very often why it's front office workloads, to the cloud. That was the kind of the beginning position. <clears throat> and everything requires a beginning for people to learn and move forward. But where the banks are now is they're actually looking at their business processes. And what's the associated constellation of applications, which are their own applications, third party applications provided by fintechs or what's known as software as a service providers. And then what's the associated data? And by taking that business process view in, you can actually absolutely look at the risk and how you put mitigating controls in place. But you can also do the necessary transformation, the digital transformation to continue to keep your financial institution relevant and contemporary in the competitive marketplace. And that's where the real value of looking at cloud in a true architectural way, where you start from the business process that you're looking to transform what is the business benefits you're looking to derive and then build the appropriate architecture to address that. And what I heard in the background music that you've just described there of looking at the value and transformation, it's not just, you know, I think the early narrative was very much focused on efficiencies and efficiency gains by moving to cloud. And now, you know, again, I heard a little bit more about the overall value, the role in a digitized economy and the, the future position of the, the firm. Talk about that driver maybe for just a quick second. What's the value that financials are looking for in the cloud? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the real simple point I put across on this is that in any institution, you put in place a business process to deliver a frictionless and convenient experience, whether it's to internal employees or to customers. But through the very nature of how you put those processes together, which is a combination of people, applications, and data sets, they start to atrophy and calcify over time and therefore become less competitive. They are more burdensome. They cause issues for people internally to do workarounds, which then adds cost. They're no longer frictionless and convenient in experiences. And your ability to transform means you have to relook at all of the architecture, your applications, the data sets, the infrastructure that runs upon. And that's a big wholesome task to look at and can take time. On the early adoption of cloud, 
simply moving components of that constellation doesn't get you anywhere. You're just moving things or the deck chairs on the Titanic in terms of how you're doing that. Looking at them in the appropriate way where you look at the full architecture to decalcify those business processes gets you to a position where you can deliver frictionless experiences and convenience experiences whether it's in the consumer space, right through into capital markets. And you need to go through this kind of notion of continual creative destruction of your, your core processes, but really do it in a hybrid, multi-cloud architecture. Again, the early adoption of cloud was, we are gonna move everything to a cloud provider and it will be a singular cloud provider, and that's the way to go. And that isn't the way to go, because applications run in different ways and require different environments to run. And therefore, not all cloud providers can provide everything in their shop with the exception of IBM. And why do I say that? I say that because we provide <laughs> the silicon of x86 to run on, provide power, which many financial systems run on. We have the mainframe, and then we also have quantum computing. But despite joking there, we also have the humility to understand that actually cloud providers innovate in different ways. And therefore we are a true multi-cloud provider and we work through the architectures as to what you can do with Azure, AWS, and all the cloud providers, because every cloud provider comes with problems in a different way, and you do not want to be locked out of that innovation. There's this whole in notion of vendor lock-in. I think more about it in terms of, I don't want to be locked into the innovation stream of one company. I want to be able to take the innovation of, of many companies. And therefore, building that right architecture allows you to get the innovation of AWS, Azure, IBM, and all the other cloud service providers and what they do that can continue to improve the quality of your business processes. And that message about not being locked out of the innovation stream and the power of you know, what cloud has unleashed for scalable applications, resiliency, that's been an important message for us, particularly in the public sector, where I think a lot of regulators look at the cloud, complex new uh, issue for them to come up to speed on. And I thought we'd pivot a little bit here and go to the US Treasury report. So U.S. is an important and, and home jurisdiction for a lot of cloud service providers, but it has been one of the financial markets where there hasn't been a lot of you know, clear articulation from the public sector of their view on cloud. And this Treasury report really fills that void that's, yeah. that's been there for a while. And it was a, a holistic report. You know, they, they did a, a strong stock take of what they saw, the drivers for cloud, uh, different models. Um, you were you know, deeply involved in, in their you know, work on this topic. What stood out for you from the report? The level of consultation with all key stakeholders, IBM, but all the other cloud providers, and also with banks and bodies such as your own, is evidenced in the quality of the document. It really helps encapsulate how you should think with the risks associated with cloud in a way that if you're a practitioner, you can then understand how to actually explain that to the various control functions you have internally and regulatory bodies. The problem and the reason why we've lent in very heavily to the consultation of this area is a problem that we've understood for quite some time in that getting to the innovation is important in financial services, but you have to do so in a controlled way that meets the needs from a cybersecurity and all of the laws, rules and regulations that exist around the world. And what I could see when I was in my old role at Bank of America working with the cloud providers is they provide general purpose clouds where there is a shared responsibility model and is your responsibility as the financial institution to build in the controls. And it's almost like buying a car and then you are responsible for putting the airbags, the crumple zones, the seatbelts in, which makes no sense. So the thesis and the thing that we have built here at IBM is we built a capability called the Security and Compliance Center that takes all of the cybersecurity requirements from the regulators in all of the jurisdictions around the world, have turned that into software so that when you land on the IBM cloud, you get those controls and you actually can show that you're in control of adherence. 
But there are two other things I'd mention as well, which is we also do that for third and fourth party risk. So if you consume a fintech service from the IBM Cloud for Financial Services, that fintech also inherits all of those controls. Those controls are being built not by IBM, but by the actual community that I referenced earlier, the 83 banks, which is growing by around five to 10 every month, putting their control frameworks in place. So you are getting the wisdom of the crowds in terms of all of the top CISOs, chief risk officers, top chief information officers around the world in that platform, which is also the benefit of cloud. If you are a community bank, you're getting the, the, the intellect and the quality of the teams that are at JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs and at BNP Paribas and Bredesco, MUFG, all of the member banks that we have. But the final point is that our philosophy at IBM is that the world will be hybrid, multi-cloud. So whilst you get the deepest levels of controls for your mid-office and back-office processes in the IBM cloud, we recognize that you should work with AWS, Azure, and everybody else. And the security and compliance center sits upon those environments and also your own data centers. So you have a consistency of how you run your environments, what your risk posture is, and why is that important? It means that you can massively accelerate your pace of innovation for cloud adoption because you can demonstrably show that you're in adherence of control. And when I say massively accelerate, you can reduce three to four year programs going through all the steps to actually satisfy regulators and internal control functions down to months. And there are many projects where we can demonstrate that we have done that. And I think what you've just you know, outlined from IBM's approach is actually a very good analogy for cloud in general. And that's the power of cloud is tapping into, there is a limited set of global expertise in cutting edge technologies and having the global community and different markets being able to, in you know, near real time, plug into the capabilities that that concentrated expertise brings, that again, I think is the analogy of the, of the power of cloud. It, it truly, truly is. So it gives the smallest bank in terms of using the cloud, the scale of the largest bank in terms of drawing upon the technology innovation that sits there based upon whichever cloud provider they go. But as we get into a position where skilled labor becomes less and less, you get the wisdom of the top professionals around all the areas. And from starting this program two and a half years ago with eight banks, we now have 83, 84, banks lean into this because there's no competitive advantage in terms of sharing how you run controls in a cloud environment. They want the financial system to be de-risked. They, they don't want a lack of confidence because a bank has IT operational issues or cybersecurity issues. And that's why they lean in and share their collateral that then gets shared across the whole financial system on a global basis. So as we think about the U.S. Treasury report in a global context, you know, the report uh, did outline several risk areas where we needed to focus and where you know, better solutions needed to come forward. I think that question of the controls and configuration settings that banks are responsible for in the cloud, helping them move along the, the knowledge curve there and helping you know, supervisors, regulators, and others move along the knowledge curve, that's clearly you know, one area that they had identified. When you think of it in a global context and sort of themes that you have seen consistently in Europe and Asia and other centers where they've been looking at the role of cloud and how to support and manage that adoption, what are some things that stood out for you as global themes that we're all working on as, a, as an ecosystem over the next couple of years? So the configuration risk is, is kind of, I guess, a technical term, but in its simplest way, there will be IT operational risk introduced into your environment through three areas. One is hardware will always fail. So how do you architect with business continuity plans to prevent for that? Software will always have bugs within it. So how do you ensure from a cybersecurity perspective, you remain patched the current elements and also those bugs don't create problems in terms of an IT operational area. So again, how you architect appropriately. 
The configuration management perspective is particularly related to change management. So there are thousands of changes that companies will make on a weekly basis to their environments. And if any configurations are not as they should be, that can cause what sometimes is, not, is known as a toxic combination, that you've made a change, there is a, ch a configuration that you didn't anticipate, you put those two things together and it causes an IT operational issue. And because of the levels of millions of configuration items, as they're known in an environment, that can take a while to diagnose, which then reduces or increases the amount of time for the meantime to restore. So having absolute fidelity in terms of the configurations in your environment, the configurations in your cloud providers environments and the configurations in the software providers that you're using in a software as a service element is essential, both from an IT operational context, but also from a cybersecurity perspective. And the security and compliance sense piece that we put together gives you that level of transparency. We don't believe that there should be anything opaque. You should knowingly know what your risk posture is so that when you are making changes, those toxic combinations don't bleed into your environment and cause profound IT operational risk. Well, that's a, a great example of the issues that the IF, IBM, all of our members and the public sector will be working on as we uh, harness the power of cloud for the future of financial services in a very digitized and transformed economy. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to pivot for a second and get your view on a few other topics. AI is certainly raced back into the headlines. I know IBM has had some time there in the past. Your views on developments in AI and then quantum computing, you know, another topic where we have viewed both quantum preparedness for some of the risk issues, but also a whole new class of computing that unlocks an amazing array of new areas of exploration that could have great benefits in health, financial modeling, and lots of other application areas. So thoughts on AI and quantum as we round out here. So, so AI operate responsibly. Um, it is still a very, very early technology. The term AI is massively overused. There's very little true AI that exists. A lot of it is machine learning or even more so if then else statements in terms of programming. AI gets trained on very narrow topics in order for it to become expert. The current rage around the various things that people are talking about as it relates to AI, if you ask that platform a question, it is not gonna be expert in the vast majority of things that you ask it for, but it will come across as an expert and very bad decisions can get made from non-expert uh, feedback if the perception is that it is expert. Yeah. So tread warily around this next wave, very appropriate wave, but next wave, because it is still a very irresponsible technology if you're not using it appropriately. And that's a focus for us here at the IF, ethical AI, AI model governance. We think the financial services sector does have a good track record of model governance. We've been you know, governing and managing models for a very long time. It's a very different class and, and new kind of model, but again, some of those fundamentals of model management so the, that we see is very applicable it, in machine learning and the, hopefully AI as well. It's the combination of bias. So there's been naturally a lot of concern in terms of bias being built into models, but there needs to be the bias that's then projected from the model into the human interface. So if the human believes that what they're getting from the, the latest range of open AI capabilities is an expert piece of advice and makes decisions on that, that's bias that has gone into a decision that is a real problem. The point on quantum, IBM launches our Osprey switch, which is 433 qubits. Quantum computing is actually harnessing the power of atoms. So we're going from digital back to actually using nature again. And it allows you to do very, very complex branches of maths that isn't possible through a classical compute, which will open up entirely new industries in healthcare, biosciences, climate control, and so on and so forth. So we're leading the way in terms of the quantum computers that we have, but with every technology, there is a yang to the yin. 
and what we're advocating every single customer to be thinking about, and the US government is leaning into this very, very strongly, is how you think about quantum encryption techniques that will be no longer viable when quantum computers come online. But the issue is you don't, you cannot wait until they come online, whether that's five years from now or seven years from now, because bad actors are currently taking data, encrypted data, in the knowledge that when quantum computing does come online and it will come online, those encryption techniques will be no longer viable. And that means that there is a lot of intellectual property theft that is taking place now that will manifest itself five to seven years from now. So you have to be thinking in every financial institution, what is your quantum safe, quantum secure, quantum agile strategy and start planning and start executing it for that now. And in addition to that risk side of the equation, you know, I think I heard from you before, there are lots of opportunities and lots of applications in financial services. And now is probably a good time to start getting a team together to think about those as well. Experimentation is key because you, you have to go through the various waves of kind of fail, 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 otherwise you're not experimenting. And there's a number of programs that we're doing across the whole of the world on financial services with quantum computing. We're happy to talk to you in terms of what that could be and the, and the research and development capabilities that we have. Well, Howard, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. And thank you for tuning into another episode of FRT. Reminder, you can always find episodes of FRT wherever you find your podcasts. 